The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? My name is Chris Milam, and I'm a singer-songwriter, a songer, and a singwriter, an artist from Memphis, Tennessee. I am joined in the studio today, as always, by my friend, my arch nemesis, producer Gil. He's joined me every step of the way throughout this season, and I'm so excited to bring you this bonus track, we're calling it, the last episode of the season. So let me go ahead and set the table for what you're about to hear. Uh, Gil and I have put together kind of a highlight reel of the season. So as you know, I talk to my guests. I ask them one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? And then over the course of about an hour, we've talked about songs by other artists that have meant the most to them in their life. But then I close every episode by asking that artist about a song of theirs that I admire. So what you're about to hear is a mega episode, (laughs) we'll call it, of all 10 of those um, segments from all 10 of the episodes so far. So for example, uh, talking with William Bell about his song, You Don't Miss Your Water, and then talking with Corey Brannon about his song, The Free Fall, and so on. So it's a supersized episode. Buckle up. It's a very fun ride, and I hope that you enjoy it. A little bit of merch table action before we dive into the episode. Um, Feel free to contact me, chris at chrismilam.com. I'm easy to find on social media, Instagram, Twitter. Sure, why not Facebook? I'll probably ditch it in the new year. We'll just have to see how that goes. But um, in the meantime, I would love to hear from you on all the social media and email channels available to you. I want to go ahead and take some time out to... Say thanks to everybody that's made this epi- this season and this episode possible. First and foremost, I have to thank Gil and Carla, who run and have founded the OAM Network. Uh, the OAM Network is a podcasting network based here in Memphis, Tennessee, that I think is up to about 600 different podcasts on the network, Um, but it really is kind of a family business that Gil and his wife, Carla, have run. Um, They do an amazing job. I've gotten so many compliments really since episode one this season about how well produced the show is and all credit where credit's due. Thanks so much to all the hard work that Gil and the OAM folks put into this show. I also want to thank the guests throughout the season. All 10 conversations were fascinating and deeply enjoyable. And I'm so, so, so grateful to all of the artists who have joined me so far this year. Much more to come in season two. I want to give one last shout out to our featured sponsor for season one, Shangri-La Records. It is a gem of a locally owned record store based right here in Midtown Memphis. You can also find them on shangri.com. Feel free to shop online with them. I'm actually going straight there from here. Going to pick up some vinyl. So thanks again to them. They've been amazing partners throughout the season. And last, I want to thank you. I want to thank every single one of you who are listening to this right now. When I started this podcast at the beginning of the year, 
really just started brainstorming what it might become. The only reason I did it was because I have this burning passion to talk about music all the time. Um, I'm a singer and a songwriter in my own right. I'm a touring artist and I'm a recording artist. Um, but I really started thinking about ways I might reimagine what my career looks like moving forward. I don't tour as much as I used to kind of more strategically than I used to. And, um, given that I'm in Memphis a lot more now and kind of focusing more on writing and recording than living on the road, I started thinking, well, what are some new interests for me in the music world? What are, what are other ways that I can explore this passion? And I've never gotten tired of talking about music. And so really from day one, this is just a uh, labor of love. This is just something that I wanted to do for fun, but I didn't know if anybody would listen and I didn't know if anybody would be interested. And Really from the outset with uh, Steve Selvage's episode, track one, um, the response has been amazing. And I only do this for the conversations, not only with the guests, but with you. I have read every email. I have read every post on social media. And I'm so, so, so tremendously grateful for you listening throughout this year and for helping me spread the word. Go ahead and continue to do so. Subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts because God knows we'll be back in 2020. And uh, with that, I'll go ahead and say that this is the last track. This is the bonus track of season one. But season two is coming, y'all. We'll be back in the new year. So stay tuned. And now, the mix bonus track. I do, before we run out of time, I want to talk to you about um, a track by The Hold Steady that uh, I certainly love and admire. Um, Now, this track is Wait a While. Um, It's off the most recent Hold Steady record? The last full length that we put right, out, yeah. Right, Um And that was the first one that you played on. Yeah, yeah. When would you say you joined the band? March 28th, 2010. Okay. And that was uh, to, to jump on a tour with them? Yeah, they had just put out Heaven Is Whenever. Okay. Um, so that was their first record without Franz, a keyboard player. And so when they brought in a replacement keyboard player, it was like, well, let's bring in an additional guitar player. And that's where I came in. Um and I remember the date because like I had gone there to like, you know, basically try out or whatever. I mean, we knew each other, but just to see how it worked, went there, played a bunch of songs for a couple of days. They're like, great, this is awesome. Go home, learn everything else and then come back in two weeks. And then so I was leaving on March 28th to be gone till like July or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was all kind of like, you know, you know, first day of school, new, new band, new, every, new everything. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just traveling, like I was like, okay, I'm leaving town again. And my wife walks out of the bathroom. She's like, I'm pregnant. Oh my God. I was like, cool. I'll see you in July. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I joined in 2010. What is it like, um, balancing that professional and personal life? I mean, you travel so much. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I have a very loving and patient wife. <laughs> Um, we just, you know, it's just been our norm. I mean, you know, it's just been the way it was since we met. Yeah. So it never was any other way, really. You that know? makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and pull a quote from Tad Kubler. Um, okay. 
He said, if we're bringing in a new keyboard player, I want a second guitarist too, and I want it to be Steve. Now, I know that this is something that you've both talked about in interviews before, right. um, but it does strike me that a lot of lead guitarists in a successful rock band might not pick someone that, in his words, he said, is a better guitar player right. than I am. Um, what is it about him specifically that he, he really pointed at you and said, I want this guy who's a better guitar player than I am. He needs to be in our band. Well, Tad had just recently gotten sober when I joined the band. So uh, his whole, he was reevaluating everything. <clears throat> okay. Um, it's, it's funny because after, t- I, you know, I, I played, you know, some of the solos on Teeth Dreams and like we were playing a show and I was playing a solo. And uh, after the show, uh, the bass player, his buddy came up to me and was like, dude, Steve was ripping a solo. Drunk Tad would never let that happen. <laughs> um, but I think he just wanted he just wanted to change things up at that point. He mm-hmm. like I think maybe you know they had been together for a while, so like there there had been the up like the really fast like you know things moved for them really quickly. Right, and then it was kind of like a little bit of a plateau, and like they were just they didn't know what was going on. You know, just a lot of changes, and and he was just wanting to like I guess. I think he was just sick of just being him all the time. And like, he wanted a, 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 not a challenge, but just a, a different perspective to bounce off of. Right. You know, um, and it took a while to get there. I mean, you know, cause I was just, I was playing whatever, however many records deep of a catalog, you know? Right. So I was just trying to get internalized with all that stuff. But, uh, you know, but by the time we did teeth dreams, like we did pretty much all of our overdubs, we did together standing side by side, like instead of like, okay, you do your guitar parts. Now you're done. Now I'm going to do my guitar parts. Like we just did them all together. Okay. Um, which is fun. What's the creation process like there? I mean, you, the way that your guitars, you have a special chemistry, but um, they're, they're complementary parts, but yeah. they also, especially in this song, they're both complementary and kind of collide against each other in interesting ways. Um, who's, is someone else coming in with kind of the framework of the song? Is that one that you kind of came in with the song idea of? No, Tag came up with that. That okay. was just, that was like a, a just a riff that popped out in rehearsal. We've kind of changed the way we we write now. Um, that was a lot of just like everybody getting in a rehearsal room with no real roadmap and then just sort of seeing what happens. Okay, which got on frankly got a little tedious after a while, you know. Um, but that that song came together like pretty much immediately. It was like you know, I mean that riff. That's a total Tad Coopler riff. Okay, you know? yeah. Um, and for me, it's just I try to figure out you know what it's. It's like, okay, should I go up high for this, or should I play a single note thing, or maybe I should just play the same thing? You know, sometimes I have to be reminded like it's okay to play the same thing that right. someone's playing. You know, right? Um, but you know, it's just it's that. I mean. I hate saying like Stonesy or whatever, but like, you know, just that, that interplay right. trying to find something that works, you know, um, some things are more specific than others, obviously. Right. I mean, I, <clears throat> I can't let you go without asking, uh, who would you say would be your biggest guitar heroes growing up versus now? Oh, man. is it the same group? Uh, well, it's a lot of the same people. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I was always a Jimmy Page dude. Mm-hmm. He, I mean, I've been in the, you know, I loved all the classic rock people, but he was the one that sort of stuck with. And and Lee Baker, who played with my dad and and Jim and Mudboy and the Neutrons. But, uh, I mean, obviously hearing about, hearing Mark Lightcap from Acetone, that was, uh, you know, Nels Klein was a big one. Okay. I'm totally like, you know, that terrible thing when like a band's not popular 
and you're into them and then they get popular and you like and, you, and then you put them down and, right. and, and curse everybody that's into them that's kind of what happened with Nels Klein when he joined Will Coles or whatever I was down like years ago so. <laughs> um <clears throat> uh yeah I mean it, it, it there I guess there gets to be a certain point where the, the guitar here like heroes I don't know man I'm not too old for it but mm. you know I I don't know I'm I'm I can't think of anybody that's come along recently or anything or things that have changed. No, that makes sense. I mean, I, I guess it was like, who was inspiring you to, yeah. you know, as a 13 year old, like crank up the sure. amp and try to learn all their, all their riffs. Well, but, you know, it's funny. I actually listened to this album uh, a couple of nights ago. Um, when I was 13 years old, it was Brian Baker okay. from Minor Threat, but it was da- uh, his band after Minor Threat, Dag Nasty, their first record, Can I Say. Um, I can play every inch of guitar on mm. that record I, I i play that record every day played along to it over and over and over again um that was a I, I, that was the first hardcore show i went to at the antenna club was oh wow okay. it was descendants and dag nasty and mike mccarthy's band distemper it was great Ooh, that'd be intense it was yeah for a 13 year old it was something else no kidding. A, lot, um, a lot of clove cigarettes we <laughs> we messaged before uh about this song wait a while and you said that it is controversial among the hold steady faithful why is that oh well it's only sort of more recently so and like i you know i don't want to get too much into talking about my lead singer's lyrics because he's a fan i mean he's beyond he's a genius um but in you know in the past year or so sort of the me too era if, if there's any criticism level at that record, it was like that maybe it was a little preachy. I see. You know, so it's like, you know, he's telling a little girl what to do. I see. You, you know, so like, I guess that people were accusing him, I guess, some mansplaining or something. I don't know. I got but, you. Um, I think it's a bitchin' song, you know. It's actually the first song we wrote for that record. Oh, okay. We played that song live, like, a lot. Like for years before we recorded it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Was that true of the rest of the record too? Or did they all come after you started this one? Um, like once you got together, was that then kickstarting so, the songwriting process? It, it, we started writing about a year after I joined the band. Like okay. we, we just did the album cycle for Heavens Whenever. Okay. And, um, and then like, so then we were done with that. Okay. And then we ditched our keyboard player who was like, who had replaced the other guy. Mm-hmm. And then rolled as a five piece without keys, which is also a very controversial thing. A lot of people didn't like that at all. <laughs> um, and it's, it's it's better having keys. But uh, so yeah, so I guess like sometime sometime around 2011, we started writing, you know, for that. But it took a long time. And then our singer it did a solo record right. in the middle of all that. Right. So I mean, we didn't start recording until 2013. Okay. Um, and then the record came out in 2014. Um, so. Yeah, and and we did the whole thing of writing together in a room, and then we got some stuff out of that. But then, you know, I went home and just started cranking out some jams and just, uh, you know, and throwing them out there. And uh, so it's kind of half and half. And and, and, and you know, Tab would bring in some jams. So, I mean that that record's mostly just me and Tab bringing in songs. Right. Um, and and then also, uh, Tad, Bobby, the drummer, and Gail, and the bass player came twice came like while well, Finn was doing the solo record stuff, they came down to Memphis to my studio and we worked on so so we we wrote a lot that way as well. Okay. Okay. Um but that yeah but that was my first sort of 
that was me being plugged into, you know, the creative situation. And now we've, we've actually got a record coming out. We've been re- since Franz has come in the band, we've, you know, we kind of started playing again and then we started writing. And so now we put out, I don't know, six tunes digitally before the shows that we've played over the past couple of years. Okay. And we've just, in January, we cut five tunes that haven't been released. So oh wow, we're going to, that's all going to wind up on a record, you know? Um, so we'll have something new coming out. I'm really excited this year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where'd you cut them? Um, most of it was done at the studio called the Isocon, which is in Woodstock. It's just this dude's house. It, you know, it's a house that's a studio wow, in okay. Woodstock. Um, so yeah, that was fun. That'd be a vibe in January, right? Yeah. (laughs) It was cold. Yeah, I bet. Nearly impossible task to winnow it down to just one, but um, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about You Don't Miss Your Water. Oh, how I cry. You don't miss your water. You're well uh, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's my very first record. Uh, I was on tour uh, probably about 17 years old when I wrote it uh, in New York uh, with Old Man Phineas's band. And we had a day off and it was raining and I was sitting in the hotel room and missing my lady and all <laughs> this stuff. and. Uh, this song just came to me, the lyrically came to me, and being right out of church, you know, in the gospel feel. And when I came home, uh, of course, uh, a couple of people in the group were older, and they were drafted. And Chip Smolman asked me if I wanted to record a solo project. And uh, I didn't know if I wanted to do anything, you know. And I, said, I don't know. So he finally convinced me and i said okay i've got four songs here i've written mm-hmm. and i'll record those and and that's what i did i recorded uh, you don't miss your water and any other way and two other songs and um you've got good look good luck doing four songs at a time don't you <laughs> I, I i have i gotta <laughs> gotta keep that in mind too right. but um it um came out i think in um December, really, the early part of no latter part of November, early part of December, and um, it played for a couple of weeks, and then Christmas music came in. But every now and then, one of the jocks from DIA or LOK, they would spin it, mm. and I I didn't think anything that much was going to happen, you know. Right. It's like I'd recorded some other stuff with media records and stuff, so I said, well. At least I recorded and I did what Chips wanted me to do. But come January, all of the jocks started playing it uh, like every hour on the hour. Wow. And uh, it uh, just blossomed from there. It just mushroomed. And uh, it was my first big major hit. Mm. And Stax's first national big major hit on that on the charts for Stax Records. So right. we, we both grew with that. <laughs> right. So, 
I've, I've loved that song um, as far back as I have memories of listening to music. Um, but I wanted to ask you about it today because now I'm lucky enough to have some per- personal attachment to it. Uh, we started our collaboration in 2017 in Memphis, uh, writing and, and performing together at Art. Right. And then um, at the end of that month, we all reconvened in Liverpool and kind of did the same thing in Liverpool. And um, in between those two uh, trips for everybody, I ended a relationship. And when the big finale concert finally came, um, and I think you kicked it off, we were all up on stage at the Liverpool Philharmonic, great crowd. And I think you kicked it off by singing You Don't Miss Your Water, which you had done a few weeks prior at Ardent in Memphis too. Right. And it's a showstopper and you absolutely bring the house down. But the second time you did it, coming off a breakup on stage, I was a wreck. <laughs> I just completely melted and still had to go on and sing like three more songs. after right. that. You know, and, and remember I'm on stage and I got to play a show. But I mean, that song is timeless and as resonant today as the first time I heard it, you know, when I was a child, um, it's amazing to me that you wrote it at age 17 because it has such wisdom and circumspection. Where do you think that came from at that age? Like I said, I was an only child uh, until I was 10 years old. So I was constantly surrounded by grownups. Mm. And uh, I heard my grandfather say that all the time. And uh, I didn't know what it meant at the time, right, you right. know, but it just, like I said, Kids, it's amazing. You have to watch what you say around kids because they take it all in and, right. and soak it up, and they never forget. And that's that that saying always stayed with me. Right. And uh, so I don't know why. Maybe it's the gospel thing. But uh, when I was up in New York, sitting in that hotel room. That uh, saying just popped into my mind, and that's why I wrote that song. You know, it's like, it it's such a an iconic statement. Right. And it, it says so much in so few words. Right. <laughs> and that's something that's true, I, I think, throughout your entire catalog. Um, I wrote down that, I mean, first of all, I love your lyrics, and I think that your lyrics are poetry. Um but they tend to find the poetry in those everyday expressions. And I think in some cases you've, uh, your poetry has created some new everyday expressions. Um, but it's something that I can say, uh, I can pinpoint from your songs that has it directly impacted mine. I, I have songs that are written around commonplace everyday sayings. And I try to kind of expand on that idea. A song called tell me something. I don't know, for example, um, that that's something I'm always thinking about now because there, there is poetry in the way that people speak every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You just have to listen. And if you're a, a people person, uh, mm-hmm. watch people and everything, uh, you can pick up a lot of just great song ideas from just uh, observation. Right. Yeah. I have one more question for you. Um, we've talked about You Don't Miss Your Water. That was your debut single. came out in 1961. You won... Uh, Grammy for Best Americana album in 2017. So you've been making popular and important and relevant music for over 50 years now. What's the secret? <laughs> I mean, that's something that can be said of so few artists. Uh, I don't know. I, it, I really hadn't thought about it. I mean, other than my career has been wonderful. I've got some great fans and 
and people behind the scenes that work hard, you know, in this mm-hmm. industry. But uh, I just try to do everything uh, to the best of my ability. And uh, I try to write honestly and mm-hmm. truthfully when I write. Uh, I've had some good collaborators like Mark Cohen was on uh, The Three of Me, which uh, right. which was the single from that uh this is where I live, the single that I won. I mean, the album I won the Americana right. Grammy on. Um, and uh, I, w- I had, uh, I've had pleasures of working with just some iconic producers and co-producers and musicians. Uh, right. You, you, you got to give them credit for that. Um, starting off with, Chip Moleman back mm-hmm. in the 60s for my first uh, single. Then Booker and I became a, a team at Stax, and we had super success. And then John Leventhal, okay. uh, who, who, of course, is Johnny Cash's son-in-law. He's married to Roseanne, you right. know. And uh, I worked with him uh, on a lot of these songs. And like I said, Mark Cohen was on... Uh, Four of them, I think, uh, co-writing. Uh, uh, not co-writing, but it was three of us on those. So me, okay. John, uh, Mark, and uh, and uh, John, and the rest of it was just me and John taking our time and thinking about uh, experiences, life, and uh, continuity of what we were trying to say, and. Um, Say it in a little bit broader way than just directing it towards one style of music. Right. And uh, I guess we accomplished that. Uh, We didn't know it would be accepted because it was so different from what was out there at the time. Right. But uh, we knew that we loved the songs, the melodic structure and the lyrical content and everything. and. We didn't want to reinvent the wheel for Stax Records, but we dwelled on some of the ingredients that made Stax such an iconic uh, fixture in music, right. which is the horn sections and all of that. And right. I wanted to keep that involvement, but make it fresh and, and, and uh, new. So right. uh, I, I think that's what it was. And I was as surprised as anybody else to... Uh, be lucky enough to win uh, in the Americana arena too right. so uh, it was just a joy right the one that came to mind was to Garrison on her 29th birthday okay you can't decide what heart decides you can't love what you don't love inside you can't change what can't be changed but you're still gonna try Now, I have a lot of questions about this song, um, but let's start here. I saw a version online from uh, Rock for the River 2012 where you brought some friends on stage oh, yeah. to sing it with you. Yeah. And you referenced going through a lot at that time in your life and those people specifically that were on stage with you helping you get through it. Um, is that also where the song came from around that time? No. The stuff that you were going through? No. So okay. the this, this song literally came when I was 29. Okay. So, or no, that's not true. Hang on, let me think about this. No, no, that's not true because that song was on is on amateur, and 
I wrote, I would have written that song probably. So Amateur came out in 2012, I think. I think so, so I probably would have written that song maybe like 2010, 2011. Actually, okay. I know I wrote it in 2010 because I wrote it when I was on my way across the country driving in my 96 Honda Accord <laughs> from New York. I, I toured my way across the country to LA. Okay. And I um, had played a show in Minneapolis at this it's a it's weird. There's a venue in a bowling alley, and I can't remember the name of it. Oh, wow. but I played there with Rachel Cantu, the singer songwriter friend of mine in L.A. Uh, we played there together, and there, I mean, I think there might have been five people there, <laughs> but I really did stay in a hotel room that smelled like smoke, and it was above a bar, and all that stuff. That's this, that is an example of one of the songs that I've told a story about, right? You know, but right. it, it ends up, of course, coming back to my emotions. But right, but I did. It does kind of have a storyteller sort of feel to it, which I hadn't thought about, but I really like. Oh yeah, and so, but the but the title came about because my friend Carrie Bear, who used to be my tour manager and guitar player forever, he we toured on the songs from Takeoff to Landing record. We toured that, and we toured the record after it, and he Airstreams and Satellites, and he was he was with me for a few years, and we did a lot of fun touring together with Steve Earle and some other people and, um, you know, did a three piece rock band. I mean, we had some fun, but he gave me a book on my 29th birthday called as a man thinketh. It's a super easy read. It's, I mean, it's a great little self-help book. It's kind of like the four agreements or something. It just has like some wisdom in it. And in the front of the book, he wrote to Garrison on her 29th birthday. Oh, wow. And so I carry that book around with me all the time and I'll read it from time to time. And it just have like a, you know, it'll just have a little saying in there, or a little encouragement that makes me feel good. And I always think about Carrie. And so um, that's where the title came from. I just, I guess, like the things that I was writing about and, you know, making, you know, taking ownership of your life and really stepping into your own shoes. I feel like that came back to him giving me that book. And so right. that's where the title came from. What was happening in 2012 when you performed it with uh, your friends? Gosh, man. You know, I, I think that probably what that was was just me feeling the beginning of like um some self-awareness and an awakening about my career mm-hmm. you know and really starting to unpack uh my disappointments and some of the things that had happened to me and a lot of the baggage I was carrying around sure. it, you know I, it was the beginning of starting to unpack that stuff and it was really painful and mm-hmm. I was going through a lot around it and so being at the river was really fun and to be able to share music with those guys and you know it was really a blessing you know and they were you know they were they just kind of wrapped themselves around me you know in an encouraging way that i needed it's a beautiful performance i really recommend people find it because um it's just uh irrepressible you you start actually jumping up and down uh during like the last chorus it just overwhelms you at a certain point and uh i mean the song on record but also in those live performances Really, really does. Um, it's just powerful, um, and it's it's one of my favorites of yours. I I have a weird um, personal attachment to it um, for a handful of different reasons. But the last time I saw you before this weekend was um, last time you were in town and you played a house show, the Folk All Y'all yes. show, and Brandon Kinder and I joined yes. you for a couple songs. And that was one of my favorite shows I've ever played in Memphis in so long. Like, that was so encouraging to me to have all those people turn up. I didn't know if anybody was even going to be there. Right. No, it was it was packed, and the crowd was there for it, and it they were singing beautiful. along, and it, it was, was a really, really fun night. Beautiful. But I hadn't... That's You played the this song that night, yeah. uh, to Garrison, yeah. and 
it hadn't clicked for me before uh, until I heard it that night. And the whole rest of that fall, uh, we'll just kind of elide over what I was going through in my personal life. But suffice it to say, I needed to hear over and over and over again the chorus of that song. Uh, you can't decide what a heart decides. Um, you can't love what you don't love inside. You can't change what can't be changed. We're still going to try. Yeah. That was such an important refrain for me to hear over and over and over again. I kept gravitating towards it, but it also kind of speaks to, I'm a bit of a control freak. So <laughs> I think most of us artists are. I, I always hear that chorus as like, okay, this is my mantra. This is my moment of Zen. I, I can't decide what heart decides, but I'm still going to try. Like <laughs> I always heard it as like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do, but I'm still going to Fucking force it sometimes. I see, yeah. Yeah. That's interesting because it's like, it's interesting what songs mean to people because like, do you want to know like what it actually means? Please. I mean, for me, it was like pushing back on the religious. I mean, it's all about, you know, it's all about fundamentalism and how, mm. you know, you can't tell me who I can love, but yeah. you're still going to try. That's but you can't, but you're still going to try. Right. Like, you know, like you can't do this. You can't, but you're still going to do it. So it's like, it's the same thing as what you're saying, right. but it's just a slightly different perspective on it. But I like your perspective, too, because it's true. That's so interesting. Well, I mean, it. And part of what I was going through around that time, too, was really having to put my foot down, you know, with some people in my life saying, look, you know, you, you need to. I don't know if you need to go to counseling about your homophobia or whatever, but you deal with that. That's no longer my cross to bear. Right. If you have a problem with me, then I don't want to hang around with you. Right. But you can't keep putting this in my face. This is your stuff. It's not my stuff and I'm not taking it anymore, Right? you know, because I was always trying to reconcile that and I always took it on like there was something I could do to fix it. And there isn't. Right. If you don't get if you know, if you don't accept me, that's your problem, not mine. Right. I can't take that around anymore. I got to do what Brene Brown says. <laughs> I got to drop it and move forward and you can deal with it. Right. You need to work out your own stuff, you know? Right. So many of your songs, it strikes me, um... This is something I wrote down earlier in your songs, but also in conversation. Uh, you frequently talk about lessons learned, um, ways that you're trying to break free from the past, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. And it strikes me that so many of your songs are both hopeful but heavy. Um, in a way, they're kind of, they remind me of Big Star uh, oh, in, in that thanks. respect. Gosh. Um, Love but I'm curious if the act of writing those songs and this being one example, but you have a lot of them in your catalog. If the act of writing those songs and performing those songs is a way to remember those lessons. For me? Yeah. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be. I like that perspective. Yeah. I wonder if, I mean, that might be, you know, it's definitely a way to work it out. Right. It's definitely a way to, to get it out, mm -hmm. you know? Cause you've, you've already mentioned in this conversation how much kind of circumspection you found in recent years when it comes to your career at large, kind of finding the things that are the truest expression of you as an artist and as a person and kind of like letting go of the other stuff. Yeah. Um, so I know for me personally, when I'm performing songs on the road from my own catalog, uh, lots of times it, it'll inform the set list. What, what do I need to tell myself tonight? What do I need to hear? Yes. Tonight? You know? Yeah. So that's kind of what I was getting. At I, I that think question. that's true. Yeah. I see where you're coming from. Yeah. I think that's true. I mean, there's definitely times when there might be a song that I should play on the set list, but it's not going to go on there because I don't feel like singing it. Right. You know, and that's probably because that's not the message I need to hear or want to tell. Right. You know, or, you know, want to give. Right. Yeah. 
Natural segue then, I definitely want to make a point of asking you about one of your songs that I admire. Um, let's talk about I Make Mad Beats, James. Yeah. This is off Better Left Unsaid, came out in 2017, and this is a song built around keys. Was that the first instrument you learned? No. Okay. Um, so I have a different answer to this than I would have had maybe two years ago. Okay. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you grew up in the hip-hop world, especially in my hip-hop world, and you grew up most of your life with adults telling you what you do isn't music, and the instruments you use are not instruments, they're just some loop machines or whatever, right. you know what I'm saying? Um, but now I, I kind of push back on that. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I think, you know, you're, whether it's an Ableton push, whether it's machine, whether it's an NPC, I feel like those are the instruments of the future. In fact, if you look at all the bands doing anything professional, there's somebody playing this, you know, not programming. I mean, playing it as an instrument. Right. Right. And so I tell people all the time, like my very first instrument was a turntable. Okay. You know, that was it. Like scratching and DJing. Like that's, I used to do crazy stuff on my dad's turntable on his and break it. You know, that was like the only times I really got in trouble. Right. <laughs> um, but like, I, you know, for me, that was the beginning of making, those are the things that I mastered right. first was scratching. I read you know? that you bought that turntable selling your lunches. Yep. That's, I was the skinniest kid in, in white station. I was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I, so, because of our financial bracket, we got lunch for free. Mm. And, um, you know, but I went to a school where everybody else was not in that same financial situation. So, <laughs> so that meant everybody else had to pay for their food. Right. So as long as I got to the lunch line first, I could run there, get my food, get whatever was the most popular meal, right? right. The pizza, the, the rectangle one, you right. know what I'm saying? And then, and then I would just go to the guy who was at the end of the line and be like, well, you know, just pay me instead of going at the top. Yeah, all right, it's cool. And so I would get, you know, some money. I would do that. I would even do that for breakfast because we would get there early. Right. Um, so I really didn't eat until the evening. Mm. Um, but that's how I bought my turntables. Wow. I'm, I think I'm still on that diet, actually. Just, <laughs> just the one the one meal. Um, although I'm not nearly as, uh, you know, business savvy in that respect. <laughs> I don't know if that's savvy, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the, the first, I love, I love this song, James. Yeah. Um and the first word that kind of came to mind when I was listening to it was ethereal. Mm. But, and, and that kind of applies, but I don't think it, it's a perfect fit because this song isn't weightless. It has, isn't weightless. It does have little moments of heaviness or like melancholy, like sure. definitely like little notes in there. You go, okay, there's, there's a bit of darkness here. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, how would you characterize this song? Um, what kind of headspace were you in when you were making it? So, okay, so my name is James, but I named the song after the son that I wanted to have. Okay. Uh, and I didn't know what his name would be, but until then it was James. Right? Okay. It's a junior idea, right? Um, but uh, just to be super transparent, and like I told you, uh, you know, I do, I do show my pain so others know that they're not alone. Um, at the time, my wife and I were dealing with trouble having children. Okay. Um, and we had 
been through three different circumstances that were really painful for us. And so I always knew it was a dream of mine to like play the piano for my son, mm-hmm. like in his crib or while he was falling asleep. Like whenever I saw movies and I saw people doing that, I was like, as a kid, like I want to do that one day. Yeah. And so that's what I was thinking about when I made that song. That was a song for my son. Oh, wow. And his name is James? His name is Nova James. Okay. Yeah. So. Perfect. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful piece. Um, on an album of f- filled with instrumentals, just like coming at songwriting from a different angle, I'm really interested in this. When you're composing an instrumental track that will eventually be titled something, mm-hmm. Do you have the title and then go, I want to compose something that, a, that is evocative of this title, or is it the other way around? You make um, a piece of mu- music and then attach something to it. I think I'm blessed to be at the point where I, I, think, I think it happens somewhere in the middle. Okay. Um, I think initially I was, I'm a programmer. So I've been programming since I was about 14 years old. So initially, like, it started from an idea, program it. Right. And then it then it started. Then it went to <clears throat> be free and then give it a title. Right. You know, and now I'm in this weird place of. I don't I don't feel I'm in control of not being in control. OK. Right. And so like and essentially like I'm driving and then like removing my hands from the wheels. OK. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so I put myself in the car. I started the engine. I am definitely still pushing forward on the gas, right. but I'm just no longer holding the steering wheel. And so that means that like, however it happens, it happens. You know? And you have enough experience and craft sure. at this point to, to trust that. Y- you have to do that. Like, yeah. You have to take your 10,000 jump shots, your 10,000 hours, right. because that's the only, that's, that's when you get to the point of trusting yourself to let go. Right. When did you get there? Was that like a recent development? Oh, man. I think I got there, man. I want to say, I don't know, man. I feel like like for me, it was like 30,000 hours. Only because (laughs) I'm not, I don't think I'm talented. I think I'm just a guy who works really hard. And so I think for talented people, it's 10,000 hours. I think for me, it's probably more. You know what I'm saying? But like Cameron. Cameron is a talented guy. He's, you know. That's that's a different story. You right. know what I'm saying? I think I just really love to do what I do. And so I think I got to the point where I could let go, man, maybe, maybe like five or six years ago, really. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it was, I guess, relatively, it was some new thing. From the jump, um, I really could have picked a song at random, but I want to ask you about a track off of The Hell You Say called Spoke Too Soon. But I spoke too I spoke too soon. I spoke too soon. Because it strikes me as a little bit of an exception to the rule of that album. Um, so much of the album is built around kind of what we come to expect from Corey, at least live, uh, acoustic guitar and vocals. Mm-hmm. Um, and with some arrangement on top of it or in some cases none uh spoke too soon either has a drum machine at one point or has some drums that are made to sound like a drum machine at one point it's a different type of arrangement and i'm just 
I guess I want to start here. What was your first impression of Corey? How'd you come to produce the hell you say? Um, I was at the, I saw him at the flying saucer. Okay. Downtown. Um, and I was there to see somebody else and they invited this kid up from the audience and let him play two songs. And, um, he blew me away. Mm. They were amazing songs. And he was scared and he was nervous and <laughs> wide-eyed, which was all very charming to me. Mm. I didn't know it's – and I don't do this, but I, I walked up to him afterward and I said, I don't know what you've got going on, and I'm not the kind of person that comes and jumps in the middle of somebody else's thing if you're already recording with somebody else. But if you're not, I'd like to talk to you about working with you because um, I really hear something in you. And uh, your songs that I've heard are great. I'd love to hear more. And I don't think if he knew, I don't, I don't think he knew who I was, that I was a, you know, local engineer, producer guy or whatever. But uh, he was very, hum probably too humble, <laughs> you know. Oh, man, those are, that's, you know, those weren't even my best song, you know, whatever. <laughs> but we, that's where Corey and I started our relationship. And then I started going to hear him and just the songs were just pouring out of him at that time. Mm. And uh, he actually had been doing something. Um, he had been recording with Posey Hedges. He just kind of started. So some of the record was already in the can. Okay. And I came in and uh, took it over and, and finished it for him. And uh, that's back when I had a studio at my house as well. Okay. So he didn't have any money, and, you know, and so we, we did things on a very cheap level. But, um, uh, yeah, song, yeah, that's how we started down the road. Songs like Spoke Too Soon or There Are, um, like, Secretly Enamored off of 12 Songs, there, there are these really interesting tracks where it seems as if maybe um, there had to have been a little bit more collaboration between producer and artist there because it, it's not – kind of conventional singer-songwriter arrangement going on. Right, and he he really wanted to, you know, by his second record, understandably so, even he wanted to push that mm. even more. Well, before we close, I definitely want to ask you about um, one of my favorite songs of yours, Middle of the Night. When did you write that? Uh, 2016. Okay. 16, yeah, I think. Do you remember where you were? Mm -hmm. What was going down? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> um, I was hanging out with some friends of mine um, in Brooklyn who were some Berkeley students. And we were, I know we were listening to some music. I don't know what we were listening to, but one of my friends um, who played the guitar on this song um, Daniel Solo Woods he um, was playing that riff chilling on the couch and middle of the night was pretty much a freestyle to him um, playing that riff and luckily somebody pulled out a vocal recorder while this moment was happening um, and it was recorded and I remember like right after it was recorded I was like damn that was good <laughs> i was like oh i wish i had that and and i did mm -hmm. so um i think 
maybe like that night or the next morning, I went and listened to it a couple of times, memorized the lyrics, and we recorded it in at um, their apartment, at his apartment, like the next day or two days after that. We did okay. like a rough version of it, which was beautiful. I fell in love with just that version of it. And then um, there's one on SoundCloud that's labeled parentheses raw. Is that it? That was the next day recording. Gotcha. And I thought it was so beautiful that I wanted to share it with people. I don't think anybody cared but me, but no, I I, I did. (laughs) It is beautiful because it was like you get to feel the real purity of the moment. Right. um, Like it was it was the moment of friendship, too. Like I was really nervous to do it. And he like left the room for me to be able to be sit in there by myself and sing it. And right. I felt really nervous, but like really appreciative and like just grateful for being in that moment. And in that song, you can hear like police sirens outside of Brooklyn. <laughs> it's hella action going on everywhere. But I think that that kind of complemented the whole energy yeah. of, of what was happening. I'm so glad that you also put that version out. I was really enjoying listening to that. I um, love that version. <laughs> Yeah, it's not, it's something I was actually uh, thinking about with my own music recently, which is as I asked you earlier about songwriting kind of in the moment versus after the fact. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I'm always fighting against, I usually write better after the fact, but mm-hmm. you still want to keep that raw energy for Absolutely. when it just happened, Absolutely. you know. So Absolutely. I'm I'm whenever I'm going through like revision after revision, I got to go, okay, what's the core of this song? What's mm-hmm. what's the essence of it and you can hear the essence of middle of the night in that next day demo it's it's, yeah. it's there <laughs> Good. i'm glad you can feel that i'm like the opposite i have such a hard time rewriting anything like once it's written i'm like how dare you shift the purity of what happened <laughs> so it's it's really hard for me to to do rewrites and i'm um like working to open myself up to that because i know and sometimes it's important um, but I'm really big on being able to write a full song in one session and that's it, you know? Um, but that can be really hard to do. I'm, I'm amazed to hear that. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like a lot of times when they come out, it's like, um, like I wasn't even really trying to do it. It was just, they just really fall out. You know? Right. They fall out and I just happen to be in the right space to catch them. Mm-hmm. So you said you were in New York when that happened. Are you do you kind of go through a similar collaboration process when you're here in Memphis? Is it other musicians in the room and maybe you're freestyling over something that they're doing? Not so much. Um, That was like, I've never made a song like, like I made middle of the night. That was a really special moment. It was like, I, I don't even know what was happening. I think we had left a club. I was probably intoxicated (laughs) in multiple forms. And we were, that doesn't sound like a musician at all. Right. You know, (laughs) I'm not, I don't do that often, <laughs> but, um, sometimes yeah. lightning strikes though. every know. once in a while yeah. it comes right in front of us. So at the time, like, I feel like I was definitely, I don't know if we went out or if we were just at the house kind of like sipping and having incense lit. It was just a really comfortable vibe and whatever was happening. I know my feelings was hurt by somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I had, sent a text message that didn't get responded to and I was like in my feelings about it and then middle of the night fell right on out and um but like now like I said I really I really work with finding loops and like guitar riffs or flutes or like making a beat with myself and then having other people help me to like bring it out a little bit more right so 
It's described on uh, your website as a smooth, sensual address to a rough and sometimes lonely space. Um, <laughs> it's It would fall into that camp that uh, we outlined earlier of something that seems to be uh, gaining a sense of peace with something that happened in the past. Absolutely. Is that fair? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, just like finding the beauty in it all, it's available mm-hmm. in every single thing, the darkest things, the hardest things, the ugliest things, the most embarrassing things. There is literally always some form of um, beauty and and calm and redemption that's available. If you have the desire to seek it, it is there for you, you know? And so instead of me allowing myself to sit too deeply into feeling small or out of control or um, undesirable, I really try to um, reconcile with myself through what I feel like is the greatest gift I've ever been given, which is the gift of song. Because I deal with that shit like now. Like I deal with feeling like I'm not good enough for things or feeling like um, I wish I would have done something differently. And I really find peace with myself and love for myself and beauty in uncomfortable moments through writing about them. I would love to take this moment and opportunity to ask you about Catcher in the Rain. Catcher in the Rain, Catcher the This was performed with the band Good Question. Right. Yes. And when did it come out? I was I was actually trying to track down the release date. It was for this. released in June of eighty six. Okay. Yeah. It was recorded in late eighty four. Okay. It was one of the first things we recorded. We'd kind of recorded off and on for that record for about a year and a half. Okay. Lacking funding, coming up with funding, running out of funding. <laughs> you know. So Well that sounds like uh could we call it a common thread throughout your career? Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you if you had 20 bucks till my dad straightens up. He's a hunchback. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, well, I mean, you ha- you have such a fascinating career arc. Uh, as you said, your first album came out in, what, 1978? It was recorded yeah. in 77? Yeah, correct. Um, and then, of course, like this documentary slash retrospective uh, soundtrack came out this year in 2019. And in the intervening years, you said you have, what, 12 albums? Yeah. Uh, and just a wealth of material, although the releases have kind of not always gone according to plan. Is that fair? Well, they're just DIY right. uh, things, you know, with small labels or no labels, you know. Okay. But, uh, you know, there's still all of them are, are, some of them are pretty good. A lot of them are really great. Um, the collaborations, especially the two albums that uh, I've done with uh, Vicky Loveland. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're working on a third, uh, writing it now. And then I've done two albums with the late Tommy Hohen, okay, uh, which I think are also great albums. They talk about power pop. That's yeah, with times ten, right? And uh, a great album I did with Tim Horrigan, uh, guy out of uh, L.A. Who's a great singer songwriter, multi instrumentalist. So, you know, and then the good question things. So right, yeah, it's all out there. Well, so let's start at the beginning of this song, um, the woozy intro. That that really interesting sounding intro to Catcher in the Rain. Um, how'd you come to that? Well, the riff just came to me on guitar yeah. uh, one day. I mean, just like everything, especially back in those days. Mm-hmm. Well, I shouldn't say that. Anytime. You know, if you've got a good riff or a good lyric, that's something you can, that, that inspires you to sure. follow through and see where it goes. 
So that was the genesis of that song, um, the guitar riff. And then when we started playing around with it with the band, I had the idea, because the guitar riff is uh, in, in the key of D. Okay. So I had the idea of the bass playing on the five, on the A. So uh, it kind of gives it a weird, uh, you know, kind of juxtaposition. Sure. You know? So it's not just like a, a D chord playing. Right. It's a figure with a the uh, I don't want to say a wrong bass note, but not the obvious one. So it kind of sets off a little tension. Yeah. Yeah. Tension. Exactly. Yeah. Um. That's fascinating that it started with the guitar riff because I mean the that main hook, uh, Catcher in the Rain. Um. I guess we can call it a chorus mm-hmm. there. Yeah. 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 Um. That came later. That's wild to me. That's such a great melody. I I thought for sure that would have been the genesis of this. No, song. it's the other way around. And and. I think the entire song, from songwriting standpoint, probably took about thirty minutes. It was just one of those days where it just kind of spilled out, and uh, and I happened to have some kind of a tape recorder, which is always a great idea. Sure. Now we have what, what they call the cell phones. Oh, my voice you memos know, are voice, voice endless. Memos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you do you write even when you're not feeling inspired? Is it just kind of kind of something that you're always checking in with? You know, it's funny. Sometimes uh, months will go by when I just don't feel it. Don't, you know, and especially if I don't have a deadline. Right. Personally, I write better with a deadline of Me some too. sort. Yeah. You know, uh, regardless of how far away it might be. It might be. Um, but, I mean, these days I try every day to, you know, sit at the piano or, or pick up a guitar and see just see what happens. And, you know, pretty quick. Right. Pretty quickly if something's happening or not. And if, and if not... Let's start over the next day or whatever and not waste time. But um I don't know. It's it's good exercise. It's good for your for your brain, sure. you know, to just try, you know. Right. Especially once again, back to what we were saying twenty minutes ago about not repeating yourself. So that's the biggest challenge is to try to come up with something that's hmm, that might that might be worthwhile. Right. Know? Does the instrument that you're playing on kind of impact what you're writing? Um, uh, musically, of course, right, right, yeah, right. yeah. But I mean, you know, I I haven't really played much piano in in years, uh, frankly, because we were playing a lot live. Uh, at that point, uh, probably about seven or eight years ago, and I was just damn sick and tired of carrying the piano around and, oh, and then setting up a guitar rig, and you know, I can imagine. And it's you know, again, God bless you, Memphis, but nobody was listening, so um, it seemed like a waste of time. So I just drifted back towards the guitar and uh, did a lot of these, these uh, level enduring projects on right. guitar. But now since we've gone back to the film and all that, that's kind of got me, I had to go back and play piano on some of the old stuff. So again, and uh, so, so we're working with a little piano stuff now, you know? Great. Well, I want to go back to something you just said. You said, once again, Memphis, no one was listening. A quote jumped out at me um, this week. So, uh, there just wasn't much of an opportunity for the Baker Street regulars to play. Not even Big Star could find a proper booking agent or a proper manager. That's why we didn't play too often. There just wasn't a demand for it. That's from Jody Stevens. You know, as someone who was kind of born after the fact and has just always existed in a world where these bands and this music that came out of Memphis in this time is just like lionized and adored, how do you reconcile that? Like, how was it possible that there was no demand for it? At the time, it's just mind blowing. Well, you know, it's just it was against the grain of what was popular, you know. And I spent my and I made an entire career of doing that, you know, not intentionally, but it's just the way it happened, right? Yeah, you, you know, if you don't like what's popular, 
doesn't mean you just give up or you just you're just going to play what's popular. You know, if you're a musician and not a songwriter, that takes, I think, in some ways, a lot more uh, uh, peace of mind and, and talent to do that and and be happy with it. I think that's great. Right. You know, um, and I played a lot of cover material in my time, a lot, sure. a lot of it because I needed to make a living. So I'm no sl- no slight against you know bands and artists that you know play uh, material by other people, but as a songwriter. You know, you're not doing it because you want to play other people's songs. You're doing it because you want to express yourself as a, as a writer, exactly. as a composer. So with that in mind, uh, you know, you just follow your muse. That's that's what you do. It's not it's it's a no brainer, really. I really love so many of your songs. Uh, I did want to ask you about one that I feel like I haven't heard you talk about that much before and one that this might say more about me than it should but uh i want to ask you about the free fall this is off mutt came out in 2012 truth be told all that we saw was something to hold through the free fall through the free fall um i've heard you say that this is a song about empty sex um, do you remember where you were, what you were doing around the time you wrote this song? <laughs> I mean, you know, they're all, uh, uh cumulative <laughs> things. They're not, I don't put down what I'm, you know, grab the pen in the middle of what I'm doing. But, uh, <laughs> let's see. I wrote that, um, uh, I think I was probably post LA Okay, when I wrote that. Maybe I was in Brooklyn. I can't remember. A lot of traveling on the road. Yeah. I mean they're all there actually i have a, quite a few empty meaningless sex songs but it's more of uh i go through um i have I've always but especially uh for the past 20 years or so i've got some depression stuff and so a lot mm-hmm. of the uh things like that are ways of talking about that you know when you lose joy of obvious things that should be joy and things that are uh, putting it in a physical uh, way makes uh, the abstract sort of bottomless thing, uh, gives it a tangible way to talk about it. That makes sense. So they're not all as straightforward as that. But Right. Yeah. Um, one of the reasons I asked that question first is, um, is this one that kind of came to you quickly? Because I know that you said that you kind of overwrite and then mercilessly um, edit down but this song feels so inspired to me i remember hearing it for the first time you played it live at uh, mercy lounge in nashville you're open up for um lucero this was years ago and i just remember hearing it and going god that just it sounds like just perfect like fully realized moment of inspiration honestly i don't remember um i know i had the the opening the moon is low enough to put your drinks on i had Mm -hmm. that already um I don't remember how it came together, but yes, I think it, I mean, I think it was all, it wasn't one of those songs where I have pieces laying around and they come together after a year. Right. It was written in a, a period. It wasn't stretched out. Right. I don't think I let things stretch out back then. Um, but I, I don't know if I, it just came out, you know, sometimes the, you don't need a pole, the fish will just jump in the boat. I don't know <laughs> if that was one of them. Okay. Honestly. Yeah. Well, it also starts with a thing that you've, mentioned a couple times in our conversation which is kind of 
setting up the audience with a joke or something that's going to be a lot darker. Oh yeah, you so, gotta have, you gotta yeah. have the humor in there, you know. Um, and and sometimes it can be like crap humor. The bridge of it is, you know, I've been drinking with those three chord girls, you know, exactly how they go. I mean, everybody knows exactly how they go. I mean, it's like that film. It's just a crap joke almost. But um, but that's a great line. But in that setting, that's a great line. yeah, in that setting, it works. Um, yeah. Um, I don't know. But the joke that we start with, just to clue the audience in, is uh, I was fucked up as my haircut. You were wasting good perfume. But I mean, first of all, I've every time I have a fucked up haircut, which is unfortunately frequently, uh, I think about that. But second of all, or if I'm fucked up for that matter. Um, but second of all, the second part of that line, that line alone, uh, you're wasting good perfume. That says, like, that's a song in and of itself. Um, I'm just in love with just that one couplet. Um and in all of it. So the first time I heard that song was live and it kind of had a style to it that is different from what appears on the record. What was the process like in the studio making this one? Um, yeah, I mean, I'll just have, uh, oh, that was actually uh, Tim, Tim Mooney, um, who engineered it. Um, he's a drummer for American Music Club. And uh, that's one of the tracks he plays drums on. He only played drums on a couple of them. So that actually that sort of feel of that is his a pretty distinctive style of playing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that was largely informed by his. He has a uh, sort of like Roy Berry, uh, uh, who you know is a buddy, but it, he's also one of my favorite drummers. Right, it has that. Um, it's it it'll define the groove, and then it'll it'll swim there a little bit. Right. You know, it'll give it, there's some give and take. Right. And, uh, and actually Tim plays like that. And, uh, I, I thought he got that pretty well. It, the drum part in the way that you're describing, it's a little bit, um, off kilter. It almost gives that song the sense that, you know, you're stumbling around in the dark a little bit. It, it's comparable, but not exactly the same as the drum part and spoke too soon. It reminds me of it. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, man, but that wasn't that song. That wasn't Tim or Roy, was it? No, um, that was Brasso on that first record. Okay, Anthony Brasso used to play in the Paul Tuckets. Okay, great band. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, that song. Uh, my wife always makes fun of me that when the, I have so many songs with the moon in it, and I'm like, it's not my fault. It just, it just shoved itself in the song. <laughs> just, but yeah, it just hangs there like the Death Star hung through my childhood. It's it's just there. It's uh, and you know I um it comes up a lot um to where I pretty much have figured out what that is and how why it comes up and uh but it's funny uh, that she pointed it out and then uh, I had, I realized after uh, she'd call me one night and I was on the way back with Clem uh, my son you know Clem sure um, and she's like. Stop somewhere and see the moon with Clem. And I looked up and she's, you know, it's big orange, huge thing. And I realized I hadn't actually stopped and looked at the moon for a long, long time. It's just uh, working its way into these songs over and over. And it's like, oh yeah, there's a depression. But uh, <laughs> so I'm stopping and I'm just like, we're sitting there, him and I, and just watching it for a long time. And I'm like, and like, you know, I owe a lot for Rebecca, to Rebecca just for like, a breaking my balls about writing about the moon too much pointing out you don't actually look at the thing you know it's right. like and just uh, that alone uh in life she's like you know don't just write it right you know so yeah 
Right. So I want to make a point of asking you about Margot Price's Four Years of Chances. Mm-hmm. I gave you four years of chances to try and fill a happy home. But now one more may as well be a million This came out in 2016. It was off her, let's say, breakthrough album. She's yeah. been around for a minute, but yeah. breakthrough album at the time, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, you produced this. Mm-hmm album um what was your introduction to margo margo um booked some time with a band uh um coming back from south by southwest i think it would be 2014 maybe and and they and you know um they just called on the phone and said hey we'd like to book the time and I've, what's your name margo you know mm-hmm. i would record anybody you want to it son and they could only do it like 11 o'clock at night because they were driving back from texas so i met them up there at 11 and we did two hours and and this is you know for anyone in i speak a lot at recording classes and music things and you know everything is an audition i say you know like a lot of engineers would be like i'm not going to go up at 11 o'clock at night to work just for two hours but i really love what i do and i think everyone you know like we talked about son everyone deserves the right to record the in there if you you don't think you do because it's it's your dreams there's no one should tell you your dreams aren't right for this place or that place anyways um Went up there and met them, and we recorded the 8-track, and she blew my mind, her and her husband, Jeremy, and the band. And they didn't really have they didn't have a label or anything. They were just trying to record, and they wanted to come to Sun. And like I said, they blew my mind, and I, I stayed in touch with them. I kept bugging them, like, please, if you need help making a record, whatever I can do, I'll do. And she wrote me back a couple months later. I got, I got the songs, and I got them the best rate I could on the studio. I basically did it for free. Uh, just paid the studio and we made that Midwest farmer's daughter in three days, top uh-huh. to bottom. Uh, she sang it all live and a great band, great songs. I didn't really hear the songs till they got there and just mm-hmm. was like, you know, hearing um, all those songs two minutes before we cut them was just like, that was cool, you know? Yeah. Um, and that one happened pretty fast. I think uh, like one or two takes and her husband played bass on that first record, which I, I love his bass playing. And I just fuzzed it out real quick. They they didn't hear the fuzz out there because they didn't have headphones on. I fuzzed it in the on this tube thing after the amp, uh, and they came in like, "Oh, we like that." Um, and then I put down I, when we mixed, I added a little acoustic wah because I uh, acoustic guitar with a wah wah just because I feel like it needed a little bit of extra rhythm stuff mm. in there. Um, but yeah, just they that that Margo came in just I couldn't believe that no one had signed her or put her out. I mean, she was. Uh, such an i like like all the others we tried such an identity unique identity and her right. husband luckily people are catching on jeremy now he's got his own album out that's really phenomenal too because he's a phenomenal sing, singer songwriter as well great but yeah it was just uh we were all just young young kids <laughs> making a record and it took i think we took like a year and a half to shop it for third man and third man heard and they loved it and they put it out just like we had done it so that's great it's really cool and then margo now is queen of everything i love it so amazing (laughs) well i mean nashville's home base for her memphis is still home base for you all even though you go back and forth a lot would did y'all cut it at sun was that was that like her first choice where you're like this is where we can do it on the budget Uh, she she liked i was the house engineer at that time so i wasn't working too much outside the studio um and she loved it from that first initial session so yeah she liked and i think the original thinking about fame but they came to sun and liked it so much that right um they stay there, and that and that's 
Uh, what's really cool, I think, is we did that record. That's, I think, one of my proudest moments at some because a lot of people want to come in and just sound like an old Johnny Cash record or something, where we went in there and did something new. Right. And a, big, a big thing that Sam Phillips always said that I loved was, if you're not doing anything different, you're not doing anything at all. Right. And I always kind of re- appreciate that. I, I love to pull from the past, and I love it when a record sounds timeless, where you can't go, oh, that was obviously cut in 1980 right. or whatever. But um same time, I don't want it to just sound like we're ripping somebody else off. So. Right. Was everybody tracking live on the floor? Yeah, everybody's live in a circle, yeah. basically cutting it live. So. That's great. Um, it definitely has that energy. It helped the layman understand, obviously, Sun is legendary and uh, historically important and has a great atmosphere and vibe that's unique to the building. But is there anything sonically that makes it special to this day? Yeah, Sun has no isolation boosts, no um, di- dividing walls or anything. And Sam was really uh, brilliant with acoustics. So he wanted to sound a little bit live, but also warm and and um, accentuate um, f- frequencies and stuff of, of the voice. So if you go in there and talk, your voice will actually won't sound thinner. Like sometimes you go in a room, you can hear like a hear. There, it's sucking out some mid range or, or something, right? And he, but didn't want it overly bassy either, so he just got it kind of. I think it's somewhere in the 400 hertz area, but it's a really warm sounding room, and there's just enough live floor, and there's no parallel surfaces, but there's a long flat wall where he had a curtain for a while. But with the curtain back, you can get a kind of a cool bounce to the room that that um just makes everything have a little bit more. Uh, he he heard the to deflect for a minute. <laughs> he used to listen to records in a cafe through the jukebox. And he always said he loved how when he heard the record, it was booming out and bouncing off the cafe wall. So it had extra little bit of presence and roominess to it. I see. It wasn't just right there in your face. And so that's what he wanted from the studio too, was that, you right. know, like singing in the shower to an extent or playing acoustic guitar, you know, at the lobby at San Phillips, you play acoustic guitar in the lobby. It, it doesn't sound necessarily better, but it just has this, uh, reflections to it where it's like, oh, that sounds cool, you know. So right, right. He had some of that, a controlled bit of that. Oh, that's in the studio. That's fascinating because you you can definitely hear that. I know exactly what yeah, you exactly, mean. Yeah. Well, I definitely. I mean, the the whole mix is wonderful and uh, eclectic. But I know that we only have you for a little while. So before we go any further, I definitely want to make a point of closing the conversation by asking you about your song, Painted Image. Uh, this is the title track to yeah. your album, Painted, Painted Image. came out this year, 2019. No, no, I don't want to go with you. No, no, I don't want to go there with you. I'm going to go ahead and do a shameless plug for you. The whole album is remarkable and I've listened to it a lot this year and I'm a fan. Um, But the title track is one that I definitely wanted to ask you about because it, it feels like an outlier Mm -hmm. on the record. Um, Do you remember where you were when you wrote this one? Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, And I, as you can tell from my list, I love outliers. I'm all about, you know, what's not like everything else. uh, Cause I'm all about diversity all the time. Um, But yeah, this song um, as most really important songs comes, 
from like a dark place, you know? And um, more than anything, Painted Image, I think was like a declaration that people want to portray you as something. And that's something I've, I've struggled with my entire life, being mixed, being in the church, out of the church, you know, like this big jumble and combination of things. Um, they're constantly trying to do that, but we're more than the sum of what somebody thinks of us. So that's, that's really where um, I was coming from when I wrote that. And also, as I was um, making the record, you know, just thinking ahead to like, how media um, and really anybody out there in the music world can try to portray you in a certain way. But this was me saying like, that's, that's not who I am. Right. And I feel like I'm constantly saying that, but this song captures that the best because of how, um, I don't know, it's very like melancholy, yeah. I feel like. So I think it um, really drove that home. Well, it's, it's a fascinating song and I'm interested to hear you say that it feels like, you know, a, a distillation of who you are. Um, it, there's that Spanish influence guitar part. Um, what, what, what instrument is that? Is it? It's just a guitar. Um, I, it was just me on an acoustic. Okay. And then, um, I think we had like, I played a 12 string, like to just strum some chords and then, um, uh, Jonathan Kirksky on sure. cello. And that was it. It's the most bare song on the whole record. Right. Yeah. Did you write it on guitar? I did. Yeah. yeah. It's dun, 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 dun. That's me on acoustic. Yeah. Okay. Just with the rhythm doing that. Mm -hmm. But that, that melody definitely feels Spanish in some way. Am I? No, you're totally right. And what's weird about that is that actually comes from um, my upbringing. Not that my family listened to any Spanish music, but a lot of the songs that we had to sing had these like Spanish rhythms that okay. they were actually taking from the Jewish culture. Oh, it's bizarre. It's weird. It's a big eclectic mix, but okay. yeah, that's where my ear for stuff like that comes from. Definitely. Where did you cut this record? Um, we cut it at electrophonic with Scott Bomar. Got you. So beyond the song itself being fascinating, the, the recording is really cool. Um, and I've got a lot of questions about it. So, yeah, how did kind of the psychedelic elements come into it? So um, I think Scott and I are both very much fans of like 50s and 60s music. Mm. And psychedelic music is definitely a huge influence in a, a lot of what I do. But um, even going back before that, like I'm a big fan of Joe Meek mm. and his um, production techniques and... Um, I think Scott is too. Scott has a lot of um, his own really cool influences as well. But we're, we both were like, this record should sound like big and cinematic and it should have like heavy reverb because I'm not afraid of that. Like right. I want it to take you somewhere else. Right. And I think you can do that with a lot of those elements. And of course, like he, you know, he worked his magic when I wasn't there and, and did some <laughs> stuff behind the scenes to, to make it the incredible record that it is today. <clears throat> between your EP outcast and this album, um, is it fair to say that it's easier to hear more kind of garage rock elements and outcast as opposed to painted image? Yes. And that was actually intentional. Painted, okay. painted image was actually finished first. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, the issue was we thought this is such a big record. If I'm a brand new artist coming out and this is what we come out with, 
you know, that was the fear that um, it wouldn't be taken as seriously. And, um, and also like I needed to be out on the road. So my agents were like, okay, we kind of need music out there to get momentum going. So uh, I had been, I'm always writing. So I had written tons of stuff since then. And we just went in and recorded a quick EP, like to have a better example of what a live representation of what we were doing. Cause I travel as a trio I see. Um, every once in a while, I'll have a big band with me like here in Memphis or somewhere, but it's always trio based. And so we wanted something out there first um, to be able to, you know, book me these different dates uh, that sounded more like the live representation. So it has more energy and it, yeah, it definitely does have a more garage rock feel to it. But it- yeah, we came out with that first. The Mix is an OAM Network production. Available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com. Hosted by Chris Milam. Produced by Gil Worth. Logo by Andy Crawford Andrus.